0: Hello, you're listening to On The Point, the News Collective's show, formerly known as Democracy Watch, bringing you alternative and undercovered current affairs coverage from Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. I'm Isaac Yu.
1: I'm Joshua Azizi.
2: I'm Akshay
3: Kukadni.
0: I'm Grace Jenkins.
3: And I'm Alex Tribulsi. It's Friday, November 20th. We're broadcasting remotely nowadays, but we're based on UBC's Vancouver campus, on the ancestral and unceded territories of the Hunkamunum-speaking Musqueam people. Today we've got an interview with Sarah Sagai from the Vancouver Tenants Union to talk about the rent freeze announced by John Horgan, as well as the VTU's demand for an eviction ban.
2: We'll also talk about the new restrictions announced by Dr. Bonnie Henry, including mandatory masks and the places that are not mandatory.
4: Plus, we'll chat about the new VPD community policing team and Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart's move to decriminalize simple possession of drugs in the city.
1: But first, let's listen to the interview Isa did with Sarah Zagai from the Vancouver Tenants Union. Isa, can you tell us about why you wanted to speak with Sarah?
0: Sure. So the Premier John Horgan announced a freeze on rent increases until the end of 2021 a week ago, but the Vancouver Tenants Union said that was the bare minimum and put out a letter demanding that the province do more, including an evictions ban. I decided to speak to Sarah to find out why this was the case and what the province as well as the City of Vancouver could be doing to help out renters during this pandemic. Sarah was really interesting and I learned a lot from her. I hope you do too, so let's have a listen. Yeah, so let's get started. Could you please introduce yourself for the recording?
5: Yes, for sure. My name is Sarah Sagay. I am uh, a board member of the Vancouver Tenants Union, and I've been involved in uh, tenant advocacy in uh, at VTU for the last three years, um, and uh, in general, uh, doing uh, tenants and uh, and home uh, housing advocacy for the last five years in Vancouver.
0: So John Horgan announced last Monday that the province would continue to freeze rents until the end of next year what are your thoughts on that
5: well you know i think it's interesting because vtu and other groups have been calling for a rent freeze since at least two to three years before this pandemic hit um and uh there was a time where calling for a rent freeze was um called a very radical thing and um Or that's at least what we kept hearing from the politicians at the same time. uh, Many tenants and uh, members that we talked to told us that it's rent freeze is too little, too late. And uh, what we actually need is a rent rollback to control this uh, runaway rental market. That was the situation before the pandemic. Um, So even then, in reality for people's lives, a freeze on the increase does not really do much because the rents are already way too high, and that's what we kept hearing even back then. Um, and uh, I, I should clarify this. I think a lot of people, when when they hear rent freeze, they think it means a freeze on paying rent, which is what we want, of course. Um, but but it's um, it actually is just the freeze on the two percent or so. Um, increase that is allowed annually and there's another problem with this um, the declaration or um, announcement about the freeze which is that it's actually not a complete and universal freeze Um, the landlord still can increase the rents between tenancies which we think is actually uh, the main source of uh, the increase in rent that we see Uh, most of the increase in rent happens at tenants turnover not necessarily um, uh, annually for the same tenant, although that happens a lot as well. Landlords tend to use all the opportunity that they can to increase the rent, including using the maximum uh, allowable increase. Um, but but the, the main reason that we have an out-of-control renter ma- rental market is not because of the annual increase, is because of um, lack of rent control between tenancies, so that's something that this announcement does not address. That's a big gap. Um, I'll tell you why it's a big gap. It um, we are worried that it will actually incentivize evictions. We are in a situation where um, the main concern that tenants have, or two main concerns, a concern that tenants have, is one. rent debt that they've accrued since the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of people lost their jobs. About 20 to 30% of the population across Canada went on CERB this year. Um, So that's, imagine um, before the pandemic, the average uh, one-bedroom rental in Vancouver was over $2,000. Now imagine having your income, imagine renting a place, uh, relying on an income that could afford that um, rent, and then suddenly having your income reduced in the best case of uh, scenarios to $2,000 a month. Um, We did a survey, VTU did a survey of our members, about 400 people responded to it, uh, which showed that about 70% of the respondents did not think they could afford a uh, payback of the rent that that they've accrued. And about 30% reported going hungry in order to pay rent. Um, that's a, a really inhumane and cruel situation that we're putting a lot of people in. Um, I hear landlords uh, talking about how they have costs too, and uh, they, you know, they they have to run a business and it has to be profitable for them. Um, I think we're in a situation that we need to look beyond individual profit. We need to look at what is best for the society. Um, when we're taking care of people in, during this health crisis. And that's not what I see. That's not what I hear um, in in our uh, in the kind of discourse that we hear around housing. A lot of people have had their income seriously reduced as the result of losing their jobs in this pandemic. And um, at the same time, landlords expect to receive the same uh, profit, the same revenue. Um, well, I think... I think the rents, um, the the revenue that landlords receive, should also be adjusted according to um, the uh, how much people's renters' incomes have been lowered as a result of this pandemic. So um, yeah, so the basically the rent debt and the threat of eviction are the two main concerns that tenants have right now. Um, the rent, the increase that could possibly happen on top of that rent. Well, I mean, we're glad that's not going to happen for um, for existing tenants right now. Um, although, as I said, because people are accruing these rent debts and because uh, the province lifted the eviction ban, um, which is a major, major problem, then uh, it, it actually, uh, when te- when landlords see that they can't maybe get their full rent from a tenant who's lost, uh, they, they can't increase the rent either, but they can evict the tenant um, and they can also increase the rent on the turnover for the next tenant, then that's actually an incentive to get rid of a lot of people. We really hope that this government um, acts before they have a full-blown eviction crisis on their hands. That's the thing that we uh, worry the most about.
0: So could you explain the eviction ban requests and the VTU's demands?
5: Uh, yeah, well, uh, we did have an eviction ban until September this year, and um, uh, that was something that a lot of uh, different countries were using as well. Uh, it, it also existed in the states, and um, it, it just—it it seems just like common sense, right? Um, no one should lose their homes during a pandemic. Um, somebody's home is their first line of defense against uh, the virus. We're hearing Dr. Henry talk all the time about you know, self-isolation and so on. Imagine not having a home. Um, there are over a hundred people camping at the Strathcona Park since this summer. And uh, in this weather, I don't think anyone wants to live outside. I think everyone needs a shelter. Um, and But the, the reality is, just, is that there's just no options. There's no housing being offered to people who are on the streets. And that's a public health crisis as well as a housing crisis. Um, we, we think uh, the government needs to step in and uh, provide housing uh, for everybody who needs it. We have a situation where uh, the 90% of our housing is uh, private. I think the cracks are going to start to show um, now that we have this public health crisis on our hands, um, on top of the housing crisis that we had before. I think we think uh, the government needs to step in and build a lot of housing. Um, can by, um, by uh, you can start by increasing shelter spaces, you can start by building a lot more modular housing, and you can also start by taking possession of the housing that already exists and uh, bring it into public possession in order to actually use it to house people instead of having housing sit empty um, as a, as an investment, as a form of investment. Um, so our demands are for the province to reinstate the eviction ban. Um, we need uh, rent control and rent freeze at tenants' turnover. That's a really, really big gap. And uh, i surprised that they're not even talking about it when they say rent freeze um, they do not mention that there is no freeze on turnover. And uh, uh, to, uh, of course, we want the freeze uh, to, uh, for, the, for the rent increases to be in place, not just until July, but past that, uh, all the way until uh, full economic recovery has happened. Um, and uh, very important, we need um, rent debts to be cancelled. We can't, people cannot afford to pay back the rent during a time that they were not making an income. That's just, um, it, it isn't logical, it isn't humane, and it's a recipe for disaster.
0: So, how do you feel the province and housing minister Selena Robinson has treated tenants over the course of the pandemic?
5: Well, I would say uh, they've tried to do the bare minimum. Um, we have seen uh, the housing minister um, do a lot of press conferences in conjunction with the, with landlord BC, for instance, and I think that uh, shows that their interests are in protecting <clears throat> sorry protecting the profits of landlords first and foremost, um, rather than taking care of people who might lose their homes. Um, and we think those are uh, those priorities are are um, out of place. They should be reversed. You should you should take care of people and put them before profit.
0: So to shift focus a little bit away from the province, how do you think the city of Vancouver is handling tenant situations during the pandemic?
5: Um, it's it's a little hard to evaluate the city's uh, full performance on this issue. Uh, one reason is that the city has only limited um, uh, I guess jurisdiction or control over what sort of housing, for instance, in terms of actually providing housing. The city can't do much, especially they've had a lot of, um, they've lost a lot of revenue as a result of this pandemic. Um, and uh, <clears throat> in terms of uh, sort of a tenant protection that the city needs to do at the times of evictions, Um, That's something that um, does not apply to someone being evicted for not paying rent. That's something that applies uh, when a development is happening or a renovation is happening. But we are in a kind of crisis situation. We're in, in an emergency situation where a lot of people could lose their homes simply because of not paying rent. And there is no law that protects you from that. The only thing that could protect you is is um, just a social um, uh, lens at this problem rather than an individual lens, and putting people before profit. Um, it's true that people are losing their homes because of not paying rent, but that's not to the due to the fault of their own. That's the first thing that needs to be understood. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think um, it's hard to say what the city could actually do, except they could they could help with providing more shelter spaces. Um, They could, even though uh, their revenues have been reduced, they could still spend more on um, providing uh, sort of affordable housing in spaces that the city has control over um, for existing uh, for for people who need housing. Could you talk about what you do at City Hall when it comes to advocacy? Yes, for sure. Um, So there is a whole range of things that city um, does or um, has control over, could potentially do. Um, Some of the things that I just talked about fall into that um, range. And uh, a lot of it is, like I said, with this pandemic, we've entered a sort of an emergency situation. Um, So a lot of it could not, would not necessarily apply to the kind of crisis we have at our hand right now Um, for instance uh, one thing that we've been advocating for for the last couple of years at the city hall is um, for the city to use the business license in order to um, not allow reno evictions to happen so one thing uh, according to the uh, residential tenancy act the landlords can evict tenants uh, without cause for two, for three reasons. Two of those reasons is um, for demolition of the rental unit or renovation of it or major renovation of it. The third reason is for landlord's own use of the property. Um, and the first two have been, uh, have caused a major crisis of eviction in this province for the last few years. Um, the, and, uh, and we think that happens because of greed and because of seeking profit um, and uh, the city has a way of um, putting a damper on that. It has a way of increasing the cost of um, evicting tenants just to increase rent or to um, to lose or stop the loss of uh, affordable housing um, and stop them from being replaced by either uh, high-end luxury rentals or by condos. Um, so some of the things that we've been advocating for is for the city to actually regulate um, landlords using the business license um, bylaw in order to make sure that if a tenant is evicted, for instance, they, uh, f- for, uh, for renovation or demolition, that they are allowed to return to the unit um, at the same rent or at similar rent um rather than at market rent, or to make sure that the tenants are um, taken care of in the period in between. And one really important thing which I mentioned earlier as well that we've been advocating at the city level as well as the province level, is uh, what's called vacancy control, which is uh, what I was mentioning about rent control between tenancies, um, which is a major gap and, and a loophole in the RTA. Um, that we have rent control, but it only applies to um, the tenant in a unit. It doesn't have to be that way. Rent control can be on a unit regardless of tenant turnover. That's a model that, um, or s- similar to a model that exists in Montreal, for instance. Um, that uh, if a tenant wants, if sorry, if a landlord wants to increase the rent uh, for the next tenant, they have to um, they have to explain why. They have to provide, maybe open their books and show why uh, their costs have increased that they have to increase the rent. We don't have that. We simply give um, landlords a free pass. We just assume that they have a lot of costs and they need to increase the rents um, year after year, tenant after tenant uh, by as much as they want. This this has resulted in a completely out of control rental market. And uh, the city can um, use its powers to tie rent control to the unit or or provide a mechanism that resembles that, that in effect uh, creates um, a similar restriction.
0: So that's the end of all the questions I have. Do you feel like um, there's anything else that you wanna bring up that I might've missed?
5: I think I said uh, everything I wanna say. I'll just say that when we think of landlords we really need to think of um, corporations and uh, uh, large businesses rather than small mom-and-pop landlords. Um, When you look at the kinds of situations that people, that tenants are in, in this crisis, in this pandemic, most of the times, um, they're the sort of the worst kinds of behavior comes from the companies and the large corporations rather than the small landlords. Um, And uh, those are the ones that need to be regulated. The number of mom-and-pop landlords, um, what we call mom-and-pop, which is like somebody renting out maybe a a suite in their primary residence, um, that's a very, very small number when we look at numbers across Canada, something like 8% of all landlords are uh, fall into that category. But in BC, the majority of landlords we're dealing with are large corporations and um, they make huge profits. They're making really huge profits and, and uh, that should not be made on the backs of working class tenants who have lost their jobs and um, who are scrambling to get by. And we just hope that the government opens their eyes to this uh, reality.
0: Thank you so much for speaking to me. No
5: problem. Thanks for talking to me.
3: What is this? CITR 101.9 FM.
1: A center for ants?
3: What? We're a radio station broadcasting from UBC Vancouver.
5: How can we be expected to teach children to learn how to read if they can't even fit inside the building?
3: Visit citr.ca. Derek, it's just a... I don't want
5: to hear your excuses. The centre has to be at least... three times bigger than this.
0: The Carnegie Community Action Project is based out of the downtown east side. We work to help people fight gentrification, increase the welfare rates as well as to fight for the rights of the people of the downtown east side. Please join our cause. Please come to the CCAP
5: volunteer meetings every Friday at 11.15, the Carnegie Community Center on the third floor. Thank you very much.
3: Housing now for the Oppenheimer Homeless.
0: Atira Women's Resource Society supports women and children impacted by violence by building and operating a range of safe, affordable housing and related support services, including childcare centres. Atira has housing and programs across the Lower Mainland. Our feminism is inclusive and intersectional. We envision a world free of inequalities where everyone's human rights are respected and where women and girls have the right to participate fully and effectively in all of the decisions that affect their lives. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at atira.bc.ca or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Free of Violence.
3: Welcome back to On the Point, your source of alternative and undercovered news from Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. You just heard an interview with Sarah Sagai from the Vancouver Tenants Union. Let's talk about another long-running issue in our favorite city, crime and policing. The Vancouver Police Department has recently created what they call the Neighborhood Response Team, which is aimed at responding to low-priority calls. This week, a collection of Vancouver poverty advocacy groups have called for the police board to halt the deployment of the unit. Of the, unit. the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society, Pivot Legal Society, and Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, known as Vandu, said the unit will discriminate against people struggling to survive on the streets in the city's downtown. With the examples they've given out about what low priority is, it's mostly one example was a dude riding a bike without a helmet and it turns out the bike was stolen. Or a guy who was, I forget specifically what he was doing to be stopped by the police, but he had an outstanding warrant for theft over $5,000. So it's, they've got, with the examples they've given, it sounded more like they've gotten lucky than actually stopped crime.
2: Yes, and there's something to note is um this unit so actually Vancouver I'm actually going to be doing some proper data analysis of this, but Vancouver crime numbers almost throughout the city are actually either down or pretty much the same as last year. Uh, I think we, the VPD released new statistics specifically around Strathcona Park and other areas which show it's up, but anyway, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do some proper analysis of that. But the the impetus for this unit wasn't, like, that wasn't, like, worsening crime. It was a survey which the VPD conducted, which, uh, basically surveyed only 755 people and less than half of them actually live in Vancouver. And, I mean, the survey found that overwhelmingly people thought the crime situation was worse. But it's a bit of a weird one. Let's just put it that way. Um, so, yeah, uh... We don't know what's going to happen with uh, this complaint from Pivot, uh, WA, HRS and Vandu, but let's let's see, Uh, you know, this is going to be an ongoing issue and, you know, we might have some more about this uh, next week. So uh, on the topic of sort of criminalization and, uh, you know, the war on drugs, there's something else happening in City Hall right now.
4: Uh, Yeah, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart introduced a motion in council yesterday to decriminalize simple possession of drugs within the city. If the motion is passed, Ottawa would have to approve decriminalization within the city for medical purposes. Council has to approve the proposal, and the next steps would indicate, sorry, the next steps would include Vancouver Coastal Health coordinating with the VPD on how to implement the policy this would include working out details like the exact definitions for personal possession quantities means for dis- different substances
2: uh yeah so if this was passed it was not like outright include major legislative changes because it is just one city uh it just would likely just be approved by you know the federal health minister allowing an exemption for personal possession under the Canadian drug drug services act i think in much the same way i i don't know it's the CDSA in much the same way that overdose prevention sites operate when it comes to sort of the sort of a, uh, like the grace that they're sort of uh, given. And Mayor Kennedy Stewart has said that this would be an important move in focusing on addiction as a public health issue and not a criminal one. So just for some context, right, uh, 1,200 people have died from overdoses in 2020, which is actually likely an estimate considering, you know, how many other underlying health conditions a lot of people suffer from. Uh, but and that's just compared to a little less than three hundred for COVID nineteen. So the scale is is not even not even in the same ballpark. Uh and the mayor has said that decriminalization would be used along with other like, continued harm reduction measures, like safe supply, or you know overdose prevention sites. And you know, as he mentioned, that he wants to reduce stigma with this decriminalization. I mean, all of this is like good and all, but the VPT is technically like done this already like they rarely prosecute for personal possession but if this goes through they won't be allowed to seize drugs anymore so that's the, like the major change when it comes to the enforcement side uh, of this so i, I want to hear uh, everyone's thoughts just before we go for another quick break um so we saw i uh, w- what was it a little few few weeks ago oregon the us state of oregon uh decriminalized drugs within the whole state uh, and you know they And they also want to move people away into harm reduction services. And I saw a lot of chat uh, on this, uh, you know, about Mayor Kennedy Stewart's motion on Twitter. And, you know, people like Garth Mullins were saying, uh, I mean, it's good and everything, but is it even going to pass? Is it in practice, is it going to be a good thing? Like, is the VPD going to still crack down on um, drug users as they, you know, as they're doing right now? so what do you all think is this gonna is this gonna work out
3: i hope it does i mean that's the we don't really know if it's gonna work out i mean we we do have the sort of the benefit and the downfall of how our criminal system works which is the feds set criminal laws and they put it down to the provinces whereas in the states it's the federal government has laws and the states have their own criminal laws which bit of a interesting way to do it but i'm not an expert on their constitution so i'm not going to make any assumptions about that basically it's not necessarily Amer- Oh, sorry. sorry uh, oh, go ahead
4: as an american it's not a good system i will make an assumption about that
3: <laughs> thank you but yes uh for us it's i mean it's easier to decriminalize drugs because you just have to ask the fed to go hey can you stop doing this please and again, it's also it could literally just be as simple as the crown prosecutor being like, no, we're not going to prosecute these. It's a waste of our time when we have like more serious things to focus on than someone who had X amount of substance Y. So I, I don't know if it'd be sort of like putting what's already happening on paper, pretty much. At least that's the way I see it.
1: Um, just a. Uh... Just a quick correction for, of something I noticed earlier. Um, Akshay, you were saying that COVID deaths are in BC are just below 300. They're actually at 320 now. So they're increasing, but still the point stands that overdose deaths are okay, okay. significantly higher yeah. than COVID deaths in the province. Um, the kind of questions with Kennedy Stewart's motion like, will it pass in council? I definitely think it's going to pass in council. Um, I know there's a lot of political diversity on council. But um, I think they're all pretty united in knowing that um, the overdose crisis is not a criminal issue. It's a public health issue and such. Um, the big question is, will the federal government or the Trudeau government, um, will they give this exemption um, in the Controlled Substances Act? Um, I think that's... I'm, like, really, like, I don't know if they're going to or not. Like, I think they might. They're definitely hesitant about full decriminalization and Trudeau keeps he openly says no this isn't something I want to do but just doing it for the city of Vancouver I think he might be open to that especially given that um, in Vancouver the crisis is especially bad and maybe he could see it as like you know we're hesitant to do this countrywide but maybe we would want to just try it out in this one city so I think it's definitely something that he might be like yeah sure we could try this out
2: Yeah, and uh, obviously Trudeau and Kennedy Stewart have both said this is not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. So, like, they're sort of already saying that. Uh, But, like, I mean, if you don't put the measures in place, then I mean, it's not going to move. The needle isn't going to move if you don't do anything. And I mean, nothing's
3: a silver bullet anyway. Yeah. Why are they saying this isn't a silver bullet as if it just disqualifies doing it in the first place? It's not a silver bullet, but. We need a full magazine.
2: So let's start putting yeah. some bullets in it. Yeah. What are, what are you about that? was and a
3: very American saying.
2: <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, but, and another say, sort of uh, thing to note, there was this survey uh, recently, I believe, from the CBC, which showed, I think, less than half of Canadian support for decriminalization. But, I mean, if you trust, like, I don't want to get into, like, sociology, but, like, 50 years ago, if you, if you poll the public about gay rights, they would say the same thing. So, are we really gonna... Because, uh, like, this isn't go- being put up for referendum or anything. This is a legislative motion that w- probably will be passed in council. Like, this is the elected officials doing what they would put in place to do. So, like, I mean, maybe maybe vote for someone else next time. But, yeah, uh, the, that, that was a poll that the CBC conducted, and I mean, if entire states and entire, I mean, entire countries have done this in the past. Portugal has done this. They've decriminalized drugs throughout their their whole country. So it isn't like this is radical from the city of Vancouver. But it's certainly something, I guess, but it needs to be accompanied by more. It needs to be accompanied by way more than just this. Uh, You know, like entire attitudes and mindsets need to change. And hopefully this is the start of something. So uh, on that note, uh, oh Josh, you wanna chime in something?
1: Oh yeah, I think uh, the only thing I was gonna say was I I haven't seen the CBC survey, but if that prob if that survey was pro- uh, country wide, then I think if you narrowed it down to even just British Columbia, it would probably find a greater proportion of people in support of decriminalization, not just because um the province is generally seen as being more progressive than the rest of the country, but I think on this issue, um, people definitely are, and it's also just worse here. Like, and so, I don't know if it's it is. Like, I don't know if it's as pressing in other parts of the country, though. Of course, it's pressing everywhere.
2: I I mean, it takes different forms, right? Like, uh, in uh, I know in in Manitoba and stuff, the methamphetamine crisis is pretty bad there, and I mean opioids are especially bad here but it's it's very much a case in the prairies and stuff also so like it's uh it, it it the drug crisis takes many forms and decriminalization as i said is just one sort of step to eliminate that but we we'll have to see how it turns out so on that note uh we take a quick break we listen to some ads and then we'll be back and we talk about covid-19 uh which is obviously the backdrop to everything in our lives right now so stay tuned to on the point on CITR
1: You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam speaking Musqueam people.
0: Have you heard about Megaphone Magazine? It's an award-winning publication sold on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria by low-income and homeless vendors. When you buy Megaphone, you get entertaining and informative stories written by professional journalists, and you're also helping to empower people in poverty. Here's how it works. Vendors buy each magazine for $0.75 and sell them for $2, keeping the profits. With the money they earn, our vendors are able to buy healthy food, clothing, and other necessities, plus they forge valuable connections with their customers.
1: This year I earned enough income to take a trip to Victoria, meet lots of new people, and have an awesome time.
0: Don't miss out on this month's edition of Megaphone, chock full of voices and perspectives that you won't find anywhere else. Track down a vendor using our free Find a Vendor app, downloadable at MegaphoneMagazine.com. UBC's Museum of Anthropology displays long-term and visiting exhibits of indigenous art from around the world. And guided tours are free. Our permanent collection features one of the world's finest exhibits of Northwest Coast First Nations art. Our collection includes 36,000 ethnographic pieces, 535,000 archaeological pieces, and over 600 pieces in the Kroner Ceramics Gallery. There's a lot to take in. Luckily at the Museum of Anthropology, final exams are always take home. If you've never checked out this world-class facility, now's your chance. The Museum of Anthropology is located right on campus and free for all UBC students and faculty. Come enjoy our collection and resources.
1: Welcome back to On the Point on CITR 101.9 FM. Before we end the show, let's talk about COVID-19 here in British Columbia.
0: To start, Bonnie Henry announced as of Thursday that the province has seen 538 new confirmed cases of COVID-19. Another thing is that the public health order requiring that people only socialize in person with their core bubble, which for most British Columbians means members of their own household, has been extended another two weeks. The order was originally set to expire on November 23rd but will now remain in place until December 7th. Starting November 19th, masks are mandatory in public indoor spaces in British Columbia. This includes grocery stores shopping malls and other indoor public spaces however and this is a big however it does not include schools so what are y'all thoughts
2: i i just i i don't know why i just i'm struggling to think of the reason why they wouldn't make it mandatory in schools it just doesn't make any sense to me
4: (laughs) if anything if anything If you were going to exempt something from being, if you had to pick one institution to require masks, I would pick schools because lots of children and adults in a compact space filled with germs, just generally, especially during the pandemic. I think there's a false belief that children are less susceptible, but that they still get sick and we should be concerned about protecting them as much as we can, especially since there have been signs that They can experience um, a different type of illness that we don't understand as much um, because of the virus.
0: It's also like kids are dirty. They don't wash their hands, like, you know, they're like picking stuff off the ground. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a good idea um, to let to let them just, like, roam around and not have any, like, measures. Like, obviously, there are some measures in place, and they're doing the quarter system, um, at least in Coquitlam that I know of. But still, like, I wonder what's, like, stopping them from putting a mandatory mask order.
2: Yeah, I, I have not looked into the, the, the specific orders that uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry put in. But there's already been outbreaks at schools. Like, I just... Like, so, like, if it's, so, okay, the hypothetical scenario where there were not any outbreaks in schools, even then I would question this order because it just doesn't make any sense to me, Um considering, as as Grace mentioned, there's literally compact spaces with children in them, right? But but with the the fact that there have been multiple outbreaks in schools, there was, I think, uh, in Surrey, a school was literally shut down for two weeks because of an outbreak there, Cambridge Elementary, if I'm not wrong, I like it. Just doesn't. I don't know what is not adding up for the province.
4: Just because, um, just because children might be less likely to, to spread the virus, doesn't mean that they won't. Especially since they're going, if they're going to be in person in schools, it's just like it's basically the perfect. I'm not a. I'm not an epidemiologist, but it seems like the perfect place for transmission
0: yeah and the hallways like between classes that's just it's a hunting ground yeah it's not good
1: yeah i'm looking at the global bc article that talks about why um there's why why she's not putting in a mass mandate for schools and i mean i'm only just scrolling up quickly so maybe i'm missing something important but what i'm re- reading here is that She's defining schools as a different indoor public space than somewhere like a store or a government office. She says, schools are not public open spaces. You cannot go walk into a school. We have layers of measures of protection in places in schools. And like, I wouldn't wear a mask sitting in my office. We shouldn't expect children to wear masks sitting at their desks all day long. And I mean, if you're sitting, this now going to my personal take, like, if you're sitting alone in an office like yeah then i guess i kind of would to expect someone to wear a mask but children and deaths that's like 20 kids or maybe 15 kids i don't know what the limit is for kids in a room but that's still a lot of kids in a room and even if they're still distanced that's multiple people indoors so i don't really get the logic there and
2: yeah
4: yeah if kids were all mm-hmm. and if kids were all sitting in their separate offices with doors closed for school then fine, don't wear a mask if they're in a separate room alone. But that's just, it almost, it's just not how schools work. They don't work in a way that's conducive to social distancing at all. So it seems like wearing masks would be the least they could do.
2: Yeah, I I just, like, so another thing that was brought up at the press conference was the idea of schools closing early because, as I said, we've already seen a school literally shut down because of COVID-19 and, you know, schools closing early for Christmas so that, you know, kids have a little bit of a longer break so that, you know, they don't risk their lives going in every day. Uh, and, you know, Bonnie Henry was, like, yeah, you know, we're looking into that, but there are a lot of factors to consider. We have to ask the federal government, blah, blah, So, yeah, I just... I, I, I don't want to... So I don't want to speculate about uh, a lot of things, right? But... So the NDP government were largely re-elected because of the way they're handling this pandemic in that they, you know... They were seen as sort of stable and like Dr. Bonnie Henry really helped out in that regard. Adrian Dix, you know, appearing alongside her. And I think there was a little bit of talk, especially on, uh, you know, some people on Twitter, that uh, the way that they're dealing with the school opening situation really wasn't helping them. And, you know, that might lead to some games for the Liberals, but, you know, the Liberals ran a pretty bad campaign. We talked about this on the show. So... This is pretty much so. A, a lot of things have gone wrong when it comes to the COVID nineteen response in BC recently, right? Like you know, I don't need to. I don't need to tell you the cases have been exploding. So, and schools have sort of been the thing which haven't, which it never really got better for schools. You know, like it from from day one there was there was exposures, there were all sorts of things. So. Is the is the short the sort of like the sheen of Dr. Bonnie Henry's pandemic response is? Will the schools be that like the one crack in that? What do y'all think? I
1: I think if there's a crack, if anything, it's that um, cases have just risen so much. I mean, back in back in the summer, there's that New York Times article that says, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry, she's the doctor that ace the coronavirus test. But like cases have risen just so much here, but they've also risen kind of all throughout Canada. And you know, definitely BC is doing better than other places in the world doing much better than most states. I mean somewhere like somewhere like South Dakota we're doing infinitely better than. but uh, yeah, No I, I kind of think the Sheen has definitely worn off, not to say that um, she's, that she's not I'm not to say that she's doing a bad job because she's not i just think that you know the the sheen has worn off yeah
3: it's i'm just like sort of hyper fixated on this weird treatment of schools and the education system it's like it's always on the back burner whenever it comes to policy it's like, okay so we have a plan for government offices we have a plan for health we have a plan for like public safety what about what about Like, elementary and uh, secondary schools, Eh, eh, they're fine. We don't have a lot of cases. there. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Like, the... the, I think it also... Sorry. Like, I was going to say, like, the reasoning about, like, well, not just anyone can access a school. Well, I mean, parents can get sick, and then their kid can pick that up and then bring it to the class. Like, it's not just some schmo just walking in the front door, just coughing on every single child they see.
2: Um, Isa, I think, you want to say something?
0: Yeah, no, I'm just, like, still reeling in embarrassment at having accidentally cut Alex off. Um, but I think it has to do with, like, costs a lot because when they were preparing, like, I don't think they just ever considered, like, this is all pure speculation, so if I am, like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, break- like, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but it's just my guess um, as, like, a part of the population, I guess, is that I think it has to do with cost because, like, moving online would mean, like, acquiring, like, technology licenses and stuff like that. And that's, like, and if it's for, like, whole school districts, that's going to be, like, a certain amount of money. And then it's also... I don't know. I just... I My theory is that it has to do with, like, cost and it's too much of a hassle to switch to online. Because, like, for UBC like we were able like universities are all switching online but you could technically say that s- university students are more likely to have like better immune systems compared to like children that makes sense doesn't it
3: mm. i don't know um, i'm not an expert on disease and the immune system yeah i'm not <laughs> be, i'm not an i
4: think from from what i've read it's the idea is that um because children are like physically smaller, they just don't produce as much of the virus as adults do. Um, like, and that's that's true. Because um, uh, um, that's interesting. It has to do with your metabolism, I think, and breathing. I could be completely wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Um, don't quote me on that. Please,
2: whoever's listening to this, please don't please don't treat us as gospel. I would just say that much. But yeah, go Maybe. ahead.
4: Go ahead. It's like lungs. So I I do think that there, there is evidence to support. I do think there's evidence to support that children don't don't spread the virus as much or get it quite as badly. Um, but I don't think that justifies leaving them to fend for themselves.
2: <laughs> yeah. It, Essentially. Yeah, yeah it's... Um, yeah, I don't know. I just... I don't get the 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 real logic. I and I think a lot of it also has to do with um childcare, right? Because school is often childcare for a lot of a lot of people. Uh mm-hmm. you know, because you know, as working in a central service or working uh, nine to fives, even nine to fives for some people, but they can't work from home. Um it's it's difficult to like leave your child alone, right? Like yeah, I mean a lot fair. of the way school reopenings have happened a lot of the way school reopenings have happened all across the world have to do with this because I mean the, the way the state works right now, it's not like you can afford to keep your child at home. Um, but anyway, let, again, let's not get into the t- too broad of a, a discussion here, but yeah, let's just, does anyone else have anything to say before we move on? Uh, so, um, yeah, so obviously we just, um, talking about COVID-19 we could pretty much do it every week but yeah the school situation in particular and the way it was sort of singled out during uh, you know Thursday's sort of uh, announcement about masks just stood out and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking more about schools uh, in the weeks to come so before we call it for this week uh, one of us has some news to share Josh take it away all right Um. so
1: this will be my last episode on on the point because i recently got hired as a news reporter with bell media in prince rupert and in particular i am going to be the prince rupert reporter for cftk tv which is a northwest bc um television station um and which is owned by bell media and i'm also doing news reporting for easy rock uh, north which is a radio station in northwest bc and pure country bc north which is a country radio station in Northwest BC. So yeah, um, I'm very excited for this opportunity, and I'm going to be moving up there, um, with, within like a week and a couple of days.
2: Wow, just amazing! So could you just describe for the listeners your work on the show? You know, over two whole years. All right. So um, hmm. damn, now we're getting all reflective. It's going
1: to be all nostalgic and stuff. Um, so. Um, I first met Alex DeBoer, uh, who was the former, um, news collective coordinator, uh, back in April, 2018, I went to write a UBC article about a podcast series that CITR was doing. And then I was saying to her, you know what, I should do some stuff at the CITR news collective. This sounds cool. Cause I saw that, um, some people from the UBC's journalism school were doing stuff with it and they were pretty active. So I thought that looks cool. Um, then, But I didn't do my first piece there until, like, ten months later. I did a story on um, New Westminster City Council putting in um, new restrictions on rent evictions within the city. That was actually uh, an interview I did with the city councillor there. Uh, Alex turned it into an episode of Seeking Office. That was pretty exciting. Um, then uh, in April 2019, I did some uh, episodes on... A march that commemorated the anniversary of the overdose crisis in BC. I did some reporting on uh, Vancouver City Council declaring a climate emergency. And yeah, and then kind of over the past few weeks or the past month and a bit, I've been um, editing episodes of On the Point. I've been occasionally doing interviews with folks in the city about current affairs topics. It's been a good time. I've learned a lot about how to edit audio and I'm looking forward to Adventures in Northwest BC, but I should also add that the training I've got here has been excellent and I feel like I learned a lot here and for any um, potential for any up-and-coming journalists looking to expand their broadcast journalism skills at UPC, I definitely recommend CITR. This is me doing my little plug. Alright, that's all I have to say.
2: Awesome. Uh, Um... There is one more thing. What was your favorite piece you ever did for Democracy Watch? formerly known I mean, on the point um, now, as it's known as. I
1: want to say that it's in particularly a favorite
2: piece, but back when I was doing stuff,
1: a fair bit of stuff here in April, 2019, uh, I, I worked on three episodes. One was covering Vancouver City Council declaring a climate emergency. The other was about the anniversary of the overdose crisis being declared in March. And another one, I wasn't on the show, but I did some audio editing for an interview that Alex did with Counselor Pete Fry about property taxes on businesses in the the city. And, like, in that week, I remember, like, feeling just very productive, felt like I was learning a ton. And, you know, in in journalism school, you learn a lot, but you don't get a lot of hands-on experience. And I remember Alex saying at the time, like... This is how you get out and you learn about journalism. You just get out there and you do it. And I was thinking, you know, yes, I'm because that's how I'm getting, that's how I'm actually learning these proper skills. And it felt great to do it. And I have a really fun memory of that. And she's, she was a great teacher and I
2: wish her the best with um, the future projects that she's working on. Yeah, i mean i feel like uh, a lot of us uh owe a lot of her and she's actually going to be on the vancouver podcast festival uh, this weekend if any listeners are interested in that you can go look that up but um so i mean it's not about her this week though it's about you josh uh i think i'm just paying uh, tribute of course and uh, yeah i mean it's been great working on the show with you i remember uh working on the the piece about the indian protests uh, I I think I tried my best to include you at the end. I think some things fell apart towards the end of that one, and I I took a lot more than uh, I deserved. But uh, you know, you, you helped me a lot on that piece, and obviously we've been working these past few weeks together as well. It's just been great. Um, just been great, and uh, you know, this show is much better for your contributions to it over the years. And um, yeah, I I think uh, we'll miss you a lot. You know, moving away from the city and everything and uh, I really hope that uh, you get where you want to be so I let other people also talk about that
1: I hope so too anyone else have any other
3: contributions sure yeah I mean uh, well obviously congratulations it's uh, been great having you as an editor and I think like the first thing we ever did together was a really dumb like ad for CITR where we put on some really goofy voices so Congratulations. I don't think that was me, actually. I think it was. Check the
1: no, tapes.
2: I haven't made any ads yet here, but they yeah. look fun,
3: so I
1: definitely would have liked would have Josh, loved to do something. Josh,
2: this some. was a live ad that we did for Fun Drive. Do you remember that? Oh my god! Yes. Wait, what was it the was ad? It to, was to to yeah. It was much. It was uh to get the took. I believe. I don't remember this at all. You put on the best voice, and but I vaguely I remember it now. Laughing. It was amazing. It voice. was like a, it was like a cartoon character voice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that sounds like something I would do. I believe it now. I believe this now. I am sorry for doubting you, Alex. Is
0: it my turn yet? Um okay, Josh, mm-hmm. congratulations. I, I got a fact wrong. Very nice. Thank um you. Thank you. I was very surprised to like get the phone call and I was like kind of confused, yes. but nothing but good things to say about your work ethic and whatnot thank you. um thank you for editing that has really been so helpful and like made my mm. life a billion times easier and yeah good luck
1: thank you thank you
0: um
4: i haven't josh i haven't known you very long but it's been great getting to work with you um uh, wish you. we could have met in person at some point but maybe in the future Um,
1: maybe in the future once all this i'm doing big hand gestures in the air once all this calms down
4: yeah i hope you have a great time um in your new job and i wish you all the best in the future
1: thank you very much yeah damn i haven't seen i mean like yeah i saw akshay i think last back in start of august i haven't seen isa since like february my god It's all virtual now. I think
0: last time I saw you was,